0: sometimes when you're not able to make it or you're out of town or whatever. Uh, and we know we have a growing audience there uh, listening to the podcast each week as well that that don't uh, attend our church regularly yet. We we hope that they will someday as they grow more comfortable and, and come and join us in the fellowship here at Portage Bible Church. Well, hopefully you found your way now to Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, last week we looked at just verse 14 and uh, we're talking about our great high priest. And uh, I want you to know that there are really two main thoughts in these verses between verses 14 and 16, but they're chock full of theology. I was trying to take them as a group together, and uh, there's just too much there for me to do that. So uh, we looked at one verse last week. We'll look at one verse this week and one verse next week. Believe it or not, we'll fill up all that time. And I had to cut it off. We could have uh, delved even deeper on these verses. They're, they're simple and yet profound in theology and doctrine. So two main thoughts in these three verses. The first one we find in verse 14. What is the thrust of verse 14? Well, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. Remember, he has just finished up this warning passage that started in chapter 3, verse 7, and then goes all the way to verse 13 in chapter 4. Remember, we've been looking at that over the last four weeks, really digging into what was the issue. Why were they not able to enter God's rest? What was the issue? disobedience, they had an unbelief in their hearts, right? And so those who did not unite the good news with faith were unable to enter God's rest. And so in verse 14, the admonition is, hold fast, hold fast your confession, lest you not be able to enter God's rest, right? Remember the first warning passage in chapter 2 was all about don't let your ship of life drift on past the harbor of salvation, right? Don't, don't miss it when you're so caught up in things today or think that uh, and, and abandon your profession of faith. Don't miss that. This one is, don't fail to enter God's rest. That was the second warning. So verse 14, the main thrust of this little section between verse 14 and 16. Verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. The second admonition is found in verse 16. Therefore... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And in between those two things, verse 14 and 16, is everything of, uh, that supports those two assertions. Well, let's get right to it. We have a lot to cover here this morning. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth pray, Lord, that I would cut it straight, there would not be a hindrance in any way to the wonderful truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, for all here today and all those listening at home that we have open ears and open hearts, and open minds to your wonderful truth, and that we could claim your promise in Isaiah 55 that your word never returns to you void. It always accomplishes exactly what you intended. I pray, Lord, if it be your will today, that lives would be transformed and that you would be glorified in all that we do here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's pick it up, shall we, in verse 14. This is what we looked at last week. And remember, this verse 14 comes right after that kind of scary verse in verse 13, where he says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Remember the the visual image here, right, is where the neck is stretched and, and ready for sacrifice. The idea is that nothing escapes God's view. Nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord. And he knows every thought, every intention, right? Uh, and so he's reminding them that if you think you're going to be able to fake your way into God's rest, that it's not going to happen. There will be no hypocrisy when you stand before the Lord. He'll see it all. And not just what you think he sees—the external things—he'll actually know even your thoughts and intentions. So that's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? That we're not only responsible for those things that uh, we've done, but he, the Lord even knows what we were thinking about doing, right? And uh, so He said, "Don't think that you're going to that you're exempt from that either." So then, in verse fourteen. Right on the heels, right after that very sobering thought in verse 13, where he tells us he knows our every thought and our every intention of our heart and that we're all laid bare before him, we get these encouraging words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and then there's our admonition, let us hold fast our confession. He's letting us know that even though we are laid bare by the word of God before him, totally vulnerable, totally transparent to God, that we have someone who can intercede for us on our behalf. And thank God for that, right? Thank God that someone who knows us so well is the one who's interceding for us. And immediately, remember the audience here are those who are professing Christians, right? Professing Christians. And, uh, who are tempted to fall back to Judaism. And this would have brought back, this very same would have brought back the idea of their priests, their priests. And because the priest under the law really had two functions, right? He was to mediate between God and man for man's sin through the sacrificial system in the temple. And then secondly, he was to intercede for man uh, before God, right? So kind of both ways. But the intercession for man before God was really the function of not just the priest, but the high priests, right? And uh, that's who's really in mind here. And the author again wants to show that instead of fear, they should take great comfort that the one that intercedes for them as a high priest is far superior to any earthly priest that they have ever seen. In what ways, then, is their high priest superior to Aaron and to all the Levitical priests and to the high priest, uh, the great, the, the high priest? Verse 14a, the first thing we see is that he has passed through the heavens. Now, why is that important? What does that mean? Well, to answer those questions, we need to understand the importance of the high priest and their functions under the law. So, we went last week to the book of Leviticus, and there we saw very strict commands regarding the priest's function of mediating between God and man through the sacrificial system. Remember, we looked in uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, right? We looked to the, the consecration of the priest, then we looked at what their function was, what the worship service was, was supposed to look like. And we saw Leviticus 1 through 7, all of those strict requirements of the sacrificial system, right? Had to be done a certain way at a certain time on a certain day, so on and so forth. And there, uh, there were very strict commands that needed to be adhered to how? Casually? No, Flawlessly. Flawlessly. And when we come to chapter ten, we see what happens if you try to approach God in Leviticus chapter ten in any way other than what he has prescribed. If you try to come to God on your own terms in your own way, remember Leviticus ten is where they brought forth strange fire, right? Do you remember what happened to them? They were fired, right? They were they became the strange fire, as a matter of fact. So God is holy and he saw every intention of their hearts. So those no priests nor anyone else for that matter, could ever enter into the presence of God on their own terms. Nobody was allowed to do that. God is holy. He saw every intention of the hearts. Nor could they come into his presence with sin in their own life that was not atoned for. So, well, if no one could enter into God's presence to mediate for man before God, and nobody could ever intercede for them on their behalf. But who's going to do that? Well, the answer was the high priest. The high priest then would enter into the presence of God, and even that only in a very specified way on a very specified day. We looked in Leviticus chapter 16 for that, for the Day of Atonement. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel. And if he did not follow God's commands explicitly, what would happen? He would die instantly. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the very presence of God. But even before doing that, even before he could even think about going in there on the Day of Atonement, what did he have to do? He had to atone for his own sins first before he could ever go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel. Now, to get to the Holy of Holies, to perform this very sacred task every year, the holy priest had to go through three different partitions to get into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was. And so with blood in hand, he would go through the door into the outer court. And then he would pass from there through the doorway into the holy place. And then from there, finally, he would carry uh, the blood to sprinkle on the mercy seat, he would pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. One day a year on the Day of Atonement. Three different partitions, three different portals were necessary to pass through before coming into the presence of the triune God. Three different portals to get to the triune God. But Jesus is not just another high priest, is he? He's not just another high priest. Matter of fact, he's called what? Our great high priest. Only Jesus is called the great high priest in all of scripture. And rather in entering into the holy of holies in the temple, like the earthly priest would do, he passed through the heavens in his ascension into the very presence of God. Jesus passed through the heavens, going through the first heaven, the atmosphere, the second heaven, which is outer space, and the third is where God Uh, into heaven, right, into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. That's what Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, right? And it was there that he did what? It was there that the Father said to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, Psalm 110. No earthly priest would ever dare to even think about sitting in the holy of holies, there were no chairs, there were no benches, there was no place for a, a high priest to go. He actually, they would actually sew bells, two bells, on the bottom of his uh, of his attire, uh, so that they knew he was still alive. Right. So two things, like whew, okay, he made it out, that's great, and then secondly, that means their sins were atoned for. But, so no earthly priest would even dare to think about sitting in the Holy of Holies, but Jesus sits at the right hand of God because uh, once and for all he made atonement for all sins, Hebrews ten twelve And he remains there today at God's right hand, making intercession for us. So Jesus, our great high priest, was unlike any mere mortal earthly priest. He was far superior. But I want you to notice that even his name speaks to his superiority, right? The name Jesus speaks to his humanity. Uh, Flip back to chapter 2 of Hebrews. Look at verse 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in what? All things. All things. So that for the purpose of he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make a propitiation what does that mean to turn away the wrath of God right for the sins of the people for since he himself was tempted in that which he had suffered he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted so Jesus is his earthly name if you will his that indicates his humanity And he needed to be human so that he could die, right? Because God is eternal. He needed to be human so he could die in our place for our sins. Son of God, though, speaks to what? Speaks to his deity, right? He needed to be God so that he could be sinless, right? So you needed to be fully God and fully man. Had he not been God, he never could have lived a sinless life. He never could have become the perfect sacrifice to turn away God's wrath for our sin. He needed to be both, fully God, fully man. That's why he's the only one called the great high priest. There is simply no contest between the Levitical system of the priesthood and, and their high priest and Jesus, our great high priest. No comparison. And that's why it's so important to hold fast because they don't just have an earthly high priest who has to atone for their own sins, right? Who would pass through the three portals once a a year to make atonement for their sins. They have the great high priest who passed through the heavens who's sitting in the presence of God and still there interceding for you. So he says, hold fast. Hold fast your confession. Stick to it. Cling to it. Run to it. Don't let it go. What you have is far superior than what you had before. But the author of Hebrews isn't done yet. There are some other aspects of our great high priest that he wants to bring to these professing believers' attention. What is that? Look at verse 15. That's where we want to pick it up here today. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Now, the author of Hebrews has just finished telling us in verse 14 how far superior Jesus is as our great high priest than any of the earthly priests. But now he insists that because Jesus is so far superior to the earthly priest, and because he is indeed the Son of God, that he can sympathize with us. Now, that sounds a little contradictory, doesn't it? He's God. You're not, but he can sympathize with you. How does that work? How is God able to sympathize with all my frailties, all my weaknesses, all my temptations, all my desires, all the lust of my eyes? How does God do that? How can he possibly sympathize with me? The Son of God, our great high priest, the one you told me in chapter 1, is the image, the expression of God himself. That God? That's the one now that you're saying can relate to me, can sympathize with me? How is that even possible that Jesus could ever be able to truly understand the struggles I have with my sin if he's sinless? How does he even know what that feels like? Well, he gives us two reasons in verse 15, and we want to unpack them both in the time we have left this morning. The first one, and there's a lot of theology in here, so listen carefully. As we walk through this verse. The first reason is that Jesus sympathizes with what? Our weaknesses. Notice they are our weaknesses, not his weaknesses, right? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Because Jesus was fully man, fully man, he could identify with the physical limitations of our human bodies. In other words, he knew what it was like to be tired, he knew what it was like to be thirsty. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to feel pain, excruciating pain. And he knew what it was like to suffer. When we cut our finger and bleed, right? He knows what that feels like. Remember, he was a carpenter, right? So the first 33 years of his life here. So I got to think at least once he might have. Might have nicked himself there if anybody ever done any woodwork. He knows what it feels like to be hated or simply speaking the truth of God. He knows what it's like to be revered and despised by society in the same week. He knows what it's like to see good friends pass away. He knows what it's like to see those you love betray you and undermine you. He knows what it's like to not have financial security or have the security of a roof over your head. Jesus is well aware of, our, of limitations of our humanity since he's fully man. And because of the limitations of his human body, Jesus was subjected to temptation in those areas, as Satan did his very best, remember, to entice Jesus to sin when he was at the very limits of his humanity. And it isn't, and isn't that when we most often likely give in to temptation and sin? When we're at the very, the very limits of our humanity, the very limits of this fleshly body. I know that's true for me. I know if I'm really hungry, I can become hangry. Anybody know what hangry is? It's a, all right. I, good. I thought it was just me. How about Tired. If I'm really tired and exhausted, exhausted, my patience level goes from a 10 to like a 0.1 in about a second. I have like virtually no patience. I have to really work hard at it, really spend a lot of time in the Word and prayer, which is even harder to do, I think, when you're exhausted, when you're tired. We have a lot of young babies in this church, don't we? Do you think those young moms and dads might be a little tired? You bet they are. Do you think their patience level might be a little lower on about their fourth or fifth day running on two to three hours of sleep? Not consecutive, by the way, just combined for the entire night. You think they might be a little tired, might be a little exhausted? Do you think their tolerance level might shrink down just a little bit? I mean, for some of us, God has graciously taken those memories of sleepless nights away from us. It seems like when you become a grandparent, you forget all about that. You're like, oh, what's the big deal? But when you're in it, You're not forgetting about it, are you? It is very real to you. But for those still living out those days, and there's many of them here in the church with young children, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Amen? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Nowhere are the limitations of humanity more evident in Jesus' earthly ministry than when he was led into the wilderness and Satan was tempting him there. A time when Jesus was growing more and more hungry, fasting for 40 days. And each passing day, he would become more and more hungry. But the text tells us that it was to no avail. Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, and yet what? Without sin. Without sin. That's sin. That's the lone difference between Jesus' temptation and ours, is that he faced those temptations and did not sin. Now when it says that Jesus was tempted in all things, that does not mean that he faced every single possible means of temptation. He was never tempted by indwelling sin like we are. That's true. He does not have an inherent sin nature like you and I do. Temptation had to come to Jesus from outside, not from inside of him. We get both, right? We are tempted by uh, the evil one, right, to to do things that are contrary to the word of God. And then we fight that battle internally as well, right? But let me add here also that, uh, that temptation in and of itself is not sin. To be tempted does not mean you are either virtuous or sinful. You see, the virtue we have in temptations or testing is when we do not yield to the temptation. The sin comes about when we give in to the temptation, when we chase it, when we flirt with it, when we eventually yield to it. But the temptation itself is not the sin. That being said, since Jesus did not have a sin nature, does that mean that he was not truly tempted as we are? I mean, if it wasn't possible for him to sin, can he truly, really relate to us? I mean, really? Is he really tempted as we are? Well, for centuries, Christians have debated that question. Was it really possible for Christ to sin? And if so... If that's possible, could he have fallen from being God if he could have sinned? Or if he really couldn't sin, does he really experience real temptation if it's not possible for him to sin? Well, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? People line up on one of two sides. The Latin word here, just if you ever want to know, is pacare, pacare. And so in theological terms, they say that Jesus, some believe that Jesus was peccable, which means he was able not to sin. He was able not to sin. Others believe that Jesus was impeccable, meaning he was not able to sin. I'll let you wrestle with that for a little bit, right? He was able not to sin or not able to sin. So was it possible for Jesus to sin? Here's what the scriptures say. First of all, The scriptures clearly state that Jesus never committed a sin, right? Right here, you've got Hebrews 4.15, right? Yet without sin. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Here you have another one. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Keep your thumb over there in Hebrews. We'll be back Matter of fact, let's pick it up verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Verse 22, what? Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, we know also that his temptations were real. They're not just a facade. They weren't just a thing they were going through. Look at... James chapter 1, verse 13. Now, what do we find here? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So here we have that he committed no sin. And Scripture is very clear that the temptation for Jesus was very real. But then James tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. So how does that work together? Since Jesus was fully God, how then could he really be tempted, much less ever commit a sin? And here we plunge into the mystery of how one man can be both fully God and fully human, as Scripture plainly affirms of Jesus. The answer is is that Jesus met every temptation to sin, not by his divine power, but by his human nature relying on the power of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Dr. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, explains it this way. The moral strength of his divine nature was there as sort of a backstop that would have prevented him from sinning, but he did not rely on the strength of his divine nature to make it easier for him to face his temptations. Since Jesus was impeccable, which means not able to sin, does that diminish his capacity to really truly sympathize with us in our temptations? I would say no. I would argue that the temptations that Jesus faced was even broader and more difficult because he was fully God and fully man. And I think C.S. Lewis here makes, makes this point better than I can. He says the, this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it really is. After all, you find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded temptation, is also the only man to really know what the full effect of temptation really is. Because he never, ever yielded. Dr. MacArthur describes it in an illustration like this. One day we saw some power lines on this recent trip and the man who was describing these power lines said they carry 200,000 volts so I don't want to touch them or get near to them. 110 volts will shock you. 220 will give you an even bigger shock. I don't need 200,000. I feel pain at 110. I let go. But Jesus didn't let go at 110. He didn't let go at 220. He didn't let go at 200,000. He felt it all. And you and I will never know what it's like to feel the full agonizing effects of temptation like Jesus did. Because we give in long before that. We'll never know what it's like to never, ever give in to any temptation. Ever. That's an entirely different level of temptation that Jesus felt that you and I will never experience because we'd give in. And let me remind you that the pain and the suffering that he endured and the temptation that he must have experienced to to give in was not even because of his own sin. It was for somebody else's sin. He felt it, humanly speaking, though, every bit of it and was not diminished in any way. But I don't think that's the worst part for him. I think, and I'm I'm in no way diminishing what Christ endured in the cross for us all. But I don't think that's actually the worst part. I think the greatest suffering that he had, and the greatest temptation to not endure that suffering, was being separated from the Father. Even, albeit briefly. Briefly and taken upon himself the sins of the entire world. I think that is a suffering that we have no idea what that feels like. You and I know what it feels like to be separated. We have nothing to compare with what Christ endured during that separation. And lest I remind you that God the Son and God the Father have never been separated. Ever. From eternity past, there was never a time when they were separated. But on that cross, do you remember what Jesus said? He said in Aramaic, he said, Eloi, Eloi, sabachthanoi. Which means what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have no idea what that feels like. And, you know, even in heaven, when we meet each other in glory, not a single soul there will will know what it feels like to be cut off from God, except for Jesus. We have absolutely no clue how to be sympathetic to him because none of us will ever have to experience the fullness of the pain and the suffering and the temptation like Jesus did. And thank God for that, amen? Thank God we never have to feel separation from God. But because he is precisely, because he is, or has, is precisely the reason he can be sympathetic to our weaknesses. Because he's experienced in all things, but to the fullest extent, far beyond what we will ever, ever have to experience. And it's because he's endured them to the extent that you and I will never know, and yet without sin. So in our darkest hours, in our most severe trials, those times when you're completely overwhelmed in your life. And we feel the Lord doesn't even hear our cries. Remember that you have a great high priest who knows exactly what you are experiencing and has experienced it to a place that you never have. And he's experienced them in far greater magnitude than you and I will Ever, ever know, and yet without sin. Now, what is the temptation that the author of Hebrews here is most concerned about? What is the one for this group of professing believers? They've made a profession with their mouth, but now they're doing what? Now they're tempted to fall away and go back to Judaism. It's that temptation that he was warning them about in chapter 3 that we just finished up with, right? That went all the way through to verse 13 in chapter 4. What's that temptation? to be disobedient to the Father's will because of unbelief and not to be able to enter his rest because of it. And this is one that those professing believers were really struggling with, isn't it? Because as the persecution is getting ramped up in their life and as they're feeling more and more pressure and more and more strain, as they're getting kicked out, of their kids are getting kicked out of the rabbinical schools as they're not able to trade in the market anymore, as they're spit on and ostracized in the community they've known their entire life. The pressure is mounting. Just go back to Judaism and all that goes away. And the author of Hebrews says, Don't do it, hold fast. Because what you have in Christ is far superior, far superior. And isn't it interesting that this specific temptation is addressed in all the gospel multiple times? This specific temptation to fall away from what God has commanded us to do. The temptation. See, their their great high priest, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to think about his own safety in regards to the will for his life. He knows what it's like to be tempted to alter the purpose of God's will for his life to suit his own purposes, doesn't he? Remember when Jesus was in the garden and he went off to pray? Do you remember what it said happened as he was in this fervent prayer and he kept saying, why can't you guys stay awake even for an hour? Do you remember what was happening? He was under such Stress under such. Remember what he kept saying. He was he was doing what? Do you remember he was sweating blood? Right. That's actually a medical condition when you have when you're when you're uh, has so much stress and worry in your life. You can actually sweat blood. That's what Jesus was described. Uh, Jesus was doing. And do you remember what he kept saying? Father, if this cup can be taken, if there's any other way, let it be. And yet. Not my will, but yours. You think Jesus can identify with their temptation to fall away? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Gospels are full of that. And it's it's addressed multiple times. He knows what it's like to be tempted to alter the purpose of God's will. Would it have been easier for Jesus to do that? Oh, yeah. It would have. But would it have accomplished the Father's will? No. He can sympathize, sympathize on how enticing it is to take the easy way out instead of the hard road of obedience to God's will, doesn't he? He knows what that feels like. He knows every bit of that. He knew exactly what the temptations were that these professing believers were facing. Their great high priest was tempted too, just as they are, to turn their back on God's will instead of submitting to it. But in every temptation, at every point, in every way, he steadfastly and obediently and faithfully faced every single one of those temptations, and yet, without sin, he never yielded to those, ever. And he did it, just to remind you, to pay the price for sins that were not even his. He did it for your sins, for my sins. And he did it all for the fulfillment of God's purposes for him and all for God's glory. And that's why the author of Hebrews is encouraging these professing believers to hold Fast your confession in the Lord Jesus Christ. How could you ever have a greater high priest than this? How could you ever have someone who knows you and has experienced things even to a far greater magnitude than you ever will to identify with you and to intercede for you? No earthly priest could ever do that. No earthly high priest could could do that. But Jesus did it and does it even now, today. A high priest does not enter the Holy of Holies. Uh, uh, Jesus is a high priest who does not enter the Holy of Holies once a year, but what? He's there perpetually. He's there forever, seated at the right hand of the Father. Not a high priest who had to atone for his own sin before he could make atonement for the sins of God's people, but a great high priest whose very blood was the atonement for the sins of God's people. A great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses because of he identifies with humanity because he's fully man. A great high priest who was tempted in all things and yet without sin. Why? Why? In the world, would you leave a great high priest like that to go back to an earthly priest that you had before? That's his challenge to them. And so he admonishes them once again, hold fast your confession in Jesus. No matter what trial you're facing, know that he is there. Know that he is interceding on your behalf. Go to the one that knows every possible pain, every possible suffering, every possible temptation because he's experienced them to a far greater degree than you and I will ever experience and yet he did it without sin. That's who we go to in our greatest need. You know, we get counsel from a lot of people, don't we? Oftentimes when we're in a great struggle, we're in a great trial, we run to our friends, we run to our family, we run to our co-workers. We all get counsel. One of the things at the Biblical Counseling uh, Training Conference that I was at last week, right? We just kept reminding us. Everybody is a counselor, right? We're all giving advice to one another all the time. The question is not whether we are all counselors or not. The question is, what's the source of your counsel? What is the root of your counsel? Where are you giving counsel from? Oftentimes we get advice on marriage but we get it from people who are divorced or we get it from people who are uh you know have one bad relationship after another i can't i could i wish i could tell you how many times someone has come to me and said you know well my friends keep saying you know do this do that my friends keep saying that i'm like well how is your friend's marriage well not so good that's why they're saying get out of get out get out is that good counsel I mean, you're getting advice, but is it good counsel? No, because it's not rooted from the word of God. It's not rooted biblically. So when you are tempted, when you're tempted to sin, or when you're suffering, or when you're in pain, go to the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, who's experienced it at a far greater degree than you and I ever will, the one who knows you, who knows every hair on your head, who knows every hair that used to be on your head, who knows you, who knitted you in your mother's womb, go to him. He's the one interceding for you. He's the one that knows you. I'd much rather give my counsel, my comfort in my moments of weakness, in my times of temptation, from Jesus, the Son of God, my great high priest, than I would from another sinner struggling with their sin, just like me. So the one who sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. Beloved, is that who you go to in your time of need? We say we do, but do we really believe that? Is that really who we go to? in our moments of weakness, in our times of temptation? Is that really who we go to when we're suffering and hurting? Do we really go to the one who is tempted in all things and yet without sin? I hope so. There's lots of opinions from which we can seek advice and counsel in times of our greatest struggles, but there is none like Jesus. None. None.